0: Hello, I'm Annabelle Lee, and welcome back to another episode of the Talking Classical Podcast. Today, I'll be speaking to Emily Bynen, one of the principal flautists with the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra in Amsterdam. the great pleasure of getting to see the orchestra during their London residency at the Barbican back in November last year. So many thanks to the press team at the Barbican Centre for arranging that amazing opportunity. In this conversation we talk about Emily's musical journey from Wales to studying in London and Paris, what it's like to play with the Royal Concertgebouw Orchestra and in the auditorium itself, some of the different flutes she plays and advice for practicing. And for UK listeners, Emily will be returning to London to lead a masterclass at her alma mater, the Royal Academy of Music, on the 14th of March. So do be sure to book your tickets for what I'm sure will be a fascinating and instructive day. Emily, it's so wonderful to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, pleasure's all mine. Would you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey into music? I can detect that you you have a, a Welsh accent. <laughs> Did you have a musical upbringing like so many people in Wales do? Well, uh, yes, my parents are
1: definitely music lovers. In fact, they they met playing in a youth orchestra, so when they were 12 and 14. So music is Definitely been an important part of my family's lives. Although there are no professional musicians, but my grandfather on one side was a choral conductor and organist. And on the other side, my grandmother was a keen amateur violinist, and I think would have taken it further in different times. So music was always around, and we were taken to you know concerts or ballet, opera when we were small, and I learned recorder when I was, I guess, nine at school. And then one day I stumbled across my father's old flute and I could get noise out of it. And the fingering sort of worked sim- something similar to that recorder. So that went quite quickly. And so quite quickly, my parents realized that I wasn't going to let this go and that they were going to have to find a flute teacher. So that was how it all started, really. I was 10. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. So I read that you trained at Junior Royal College of Music and then on to Senior Royal Academy of Music. So what was the training like in London? Well, the Junior Department of the Royal College of Music was wonderful. That's a whole,
1: that happens on a Saturday. So after five days of regular school, Monday to Friday, and my parents were both teachers, so they were very keen for us both to do Uh, normal, regular school. My sister and I, my sister Catherine Bynan is a harpist, also professional, also playing in orchestra. She plays in the orchestra in Luxembourg. And from when I was about, I think I must've been 12 and my sister was maybe nine, or maybe I went for one year before she joined. I can't really remember. We used to go to the junior department of the Royal College of Music which was a sort of Saturday school and you would have your first instrument your second instrument you would maybe have a choir an orchestra oral training history of music theory all those kind of things and it was a, a whole a filled school day with all subjects relating to music which was just bliss and so suddenly I wasn't the the freaky kid at school who liked classical music All my friends around me at Saturday school, they all like classical music as well. So we fitted right in. That was wonderful. So I stayed there from 12 until, yeah, till the end of my sixth form. And I wanted to study with William Bennett and he taught at the Royal Academy. And luckily I'd got a place at the Royal Academy. So I switched my allegiances from (laughs) RCM to RAM and had four very happy years at the Academy with William Bennett as my teacher.
0: Amazing. What was it like studying with William Bennett? Because I saw a masterclass that he did from YouTube and what really struck me about his approach is that it was all about the music and that, you know, even if there was a technical thing, that it would always be there to serve the music. It wouldn't just be a technical exercise. And also his approach was just so full of joy and freedom and just... Yeah. And I see that. And now I see that in, you know, so many people who've been taught by William Bennett. And I think that's, you know, that's what we all want as musicians, isn't it? We just don't want to be, you know, the technique can sometimes get in the way of us emoting. And what we want is just freedom, don't we?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. No, he very much taught from out of the music and from out more specifically from out from sound. So what kind of colour do you want to create? What kind of, what consonant does that note start with? Is it a a T or a D or maybe a P or a H? So really this, the sound of the flute, always having in mind the inspiration of the voice and the violin. Then the next level is shaping each phrase and really thinking about where is the high point of each phrase where are we going to where are you taking the listener and then technique was something was anything which got in the way of that expression really I firmly believe that myself that if you can hear it if you're reaching for a a sound in your imagination your body will find a way to it That doesn't mean that technique can't be practiced in an isolated way, far from it, actually. So you can, as you're working on a piece of music, think, oh gosh, you know, I haven't got very much vocabulary in terms of how to begin a note, for example. So then you can take that at one aspect and work on that in the sort of dry technical practice. Maybe you would love to be able to create a faster vibrato on a particular note, and that's not quite working. So you can take that isolated element into your dry technical practice but the expression and this the striving for your musical voice always very much from led by the the music and the shape of the phrasing the color of the sound if it wasn't on a flute which instrument would it be on that sort of yeah sort of. but such an expressive such a creative imaginative teacher yeah it was a great 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 privilege obviously but it was such it was such fun it was really a lot of fun of course a lot of hard work but the pleasure that Wibb used to have in playing music he absolutely shared that and spread that to his students and I think it's a great credit to him that in striving to find one's musical expression I think he never tried to fit People into one particular mold. So, all his students sound so different. And he was really worked on trying to develop your creativity, your imagination. What do you want to say with the music? What is the composer offering us as hints? And how to use that to bring the sound to the audience.
0: Mm -hmm. And now it's up to people like you to pass on his methodologies and to pass on that legacy to the next generation. I mean, that must be quite a responsibility, but also a, a great honor as well.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. You put it
0: perfectly. It's a yes, a huge,
1: huge honor to try and and responsibility to pass on his legacy. And I have to say this, I don't think I give a single teacher single lesson without quoting Wib at some point and you know sharing. The text that he might have written for a particular phrase or to, to share how he saw a character of a piece of music. So very vivid teaching. I can you know see him when I'm playing certain phrases. I can see his gesture. I can hear how he would play it.
0: Yeah, I got to speak to Daniel Palethorpe a few months ago, and he was saying that he thinks about William Bennett's sound every day when he's, you know, playing, doing his practising. So that really must be a sign of the impact that he had on his students.
1: Absolutely, yes, yes. Not a day goes past when I'm not thinking of his musicality and his his voice, his flute voice, his singing voice. He was a, a real character,
0: yeah. Amazing, amazing. And so I then read that you then went to Paris and trained with Alan Marion. Why did you decide to study overseas as opposed to continuing with your postgrad in the UK? As
1: a child, we'd lived abroad. Yes, before I started playing the flute, we'd lived My parents lived in Nigeria before I was born. We lived uh, in Sweden for a couple of years when I was very, very small. And then my first school years were in Italy. We lived in Rome for four years. So I think I always had a little bit of the sort of gypsy spirit in me. And I love travel in all its forms. And for me, that's very much an enormous extra sort of bonus to being a professional musician is the traveling I get to do in my professional life. The flute makers, I, I was playing a Louis Lot and oh, wow. William Bennett had studied, of course, in Paris and all the, the methods that I was, all the de la sonorité and Tafnel and yes. Kobo were in Paris. And so Paris was, you know, right at the forefront of my flute mind. So yeah. when I was thinking about going to continue my studies, I always Dreamt of going to Paris. And I met Alain Marion when I was doing the Nice summer school. I think it was maybe the end of my first or second year at the academy and did a summer course and loved the way that Marion taught. And it was such a contrast with the way that Wib taught, actually. And um, it was very much Wib worked on such tiny, tiny detail and really honing, you know, the legato between notes. We could spend a whole lesson on one line or maybe two lines of music. So incredible sort of microscope work, if you like. And Alain Marion took a much more, a much broader approach, if you like. Or maybe that was just what I needed at that stage of my study. I'm not quite sure, but the way it worked out anyway, I had a a wonderful, I was in Paris for eight months studying with Marion because I'd already actually Got my first professional job in Gleinborn Touring Opera, which started the September after I graduated. So I left yeah, in, in June, July. And in September I, I had the whole autumn and beginning of winter filled. That took me up to Christmas with Gleinborn Touring Opera. And so then, in January, I went to to Paris to study and stayed there until the summer. And then the following autumn, I did diamond touring again. So it was a wonderful way of spending some time, really consolidating all the detailed work that I'd done when i was at the academy and i was i was so busy when i was an undergraduate i was doing a double joint first study but i was also teaching and i was playing loads of chamber music and i was playing you know background gigs and i was playing in amateur orchestras and student orchestras and scratch orchestras and orchestras that conductors put together to do a particular concert and all kind of things so i i had four incredibly busy years and then i having the time in paris as i say i started in january and i i left in i can't remember if it was july or august but having that time and i had one lesson every 2 weeks and i had time to practice and i had time to really think about you know working on in detail on the things that i really didn't have enough time to do as an undergraduate and when I was at the academy. So the way it worked out was just a wonderful. They complemented each other, I suppose, Marion and Wib, and the, the kind of incredibly intense four years and then the, the more spacious time in to practice and to really be my own teacher, I suppose, as well, that I had in, in Paris, yeah.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. So you were playing with Weinborn Touring Opera. So how did you come to the Concertgebouw? Well, I've played in the Chamber Orchestra of
1: Europe a couple of times with Jacques Zone. And I remember him talking about how he was thinking about leaving the orchestra. And I tried to persuade him not to leave. I I said, but it's such an incredible orchestra. Why would you ever want to leave? And I didn't think very much more about it until about half a year later when I... Actually, I was on the phone to William Bennett and telling him that the BBC National Orchestra of Wales had offered me the principal flute position. And I was so happy to accept and that I, you know, I was starting work there in January. And he said, but don't forget that Concert Cabal's got a job coming up. And I, I sort of laughed it off and said, ha, ha, ha. Yes, of course it has. You know, there's no way I'd, I'd uh, get a job like that. So I'm just going to knuckle down and do the job in Wales as well as I can. And Doing that alongside the Glyndebourne Touring Opera. That was me sorted for the next, <laughs> you know, while. And he sort of encouraged me to audition for a concert, club and I, I, I sort of poo pooed it and said, no, it's ridiculous. And then it was maybe a month later, and I was having one of those days where practicing wasn't going very well. And so I cleaned all the kitchen cabinets and um, (laughs) is a way to sort of distract myself. And I went back to practicing and it still wasn't working very well. So I decided to vacuum the whole flat and then I went back to practicing (laughs) and that didn't work. So I was sort of basically looking for distractions from my practice. And I thought, oh, well, I wonder when the concert cabal deadline is. And in those days, of course, it was before internet and all those sort of things. So I... I can't remember, remember even how I got hold of a phone number and sort of rang them and said, you've got a principal flute position. When is the deadline? They said, oh, actually it's tomorrow. And so I sort of, I think I i thought at that point that I decided that they might, you know, I mean, I don't want to say it was sort of destiny or something, but I thought, well, that's extraordinary. What a coincidence. And so I I faxed off, you know, do you remember what fax is? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I faxed off my CV to the orchestra and they offered me an audition, which I didn't think of as being particularly special because... In the UK at that time, almost everyone who applied for a job got an audition. And it might be very short and there might be, you know, hundred other people auditioning on the same day as you, but, you know, almost everyone who who applied got an audition. I didn't realise until I got to Amsterdam that they only invited, you know, I I don't remember how many people, maybe 15 or 20 people that they'd invited. They'd already done an audition only for Dutch people, and they hadn't found a, which wouldn't even be allowed nowadays, but at that time it was allowed, and they hadn't found a Dutch candidate. So they held this audition that was open to other nationalities, and it was only when I got here that I realised that it wasn't one of these sort of cattle market auditions where, you know, there were hundreds and hundreds of people that I'd actually already sort of passed, you know, a first round by being invited at all. I did my audition here. I didn't think I stood a chance for a minute. But of course, I was. I didn't want to embarrass myself. I didn't want to let, let anyone down. So I was very well prepared. So I went in and did the audition. They told me that I got the most votes from the first round, which surprised me. But then I had to wait another three months for the next round, which doesn't happen nowadays. I don't know quite why that happened. I think it might have had something to do with the fact that Jackson had just left and, you know, maybe to keep the job open for him in case he wanted to come back. I don't know. And I've never found out really why that that happened. But I had this three-month wait to prepare for the next round, which was nerve-wracking because for the first round, I well, I just went in and did what I could do and didn't think I stood a chance. And now sort of I had the knowledge that in the first round I'd got the most votes. So I'd almost felt as if I could only lose the job. And then, then I found out on the day of the second, the final round, that they'd actually, it had been so long since the first round that they actually were hearing another half a dozen or a dozen people. So they put in an extra round. So then I sort of, I think maybe I, I don't know, I can't really remember what I felt, but maybe the pressure was off a little bit in that I wasn't any more necessarily in pole position, as it were. And I can't really remember very much about my audition at all, except it was over in a flash and something didn't quite go right in the Mendelssohn scherzo, but I, I didn't fall flat on my face and got to the end and was kind of surprised that it had finished so quickly. And then they they announced there and then that I'd been offered the job, which meant that you get a year sort of trial period but when I was offered the BBC Welsh position, I started work there something like two years after my audition um, because there's, the UK trial system is so very different where they might have, you know, half a dozen or a dozen people going through the same trial process. So I was absolutely shocked when there was one person going through the trial process in the Concertgeboune, it was me. And mm-hmm. I had a, a year's trial and I thought, well, there's no way that they're going to, they're going to realise that I can't do it. So of course, I'm not going to stay beyond the year. Of course, I'm not going to win the permanent position, but I'm going to enjoy the year. And I'm still here. So yeah, that was how that all came about, really. It was all
0: coincidence and having a bad practice day. (laughs) And what is it like playing for one of the world's most prestigious orchestras. I mean, the Konzerthaus has a very distinct sound, certainly when I came to see them, you know, very much in that German tradition. So what was it like adjusting to that whole (laughs) style and approach? Oh, well, I mean, the
1: building itself, that Concertgebouw, I was quite disappointed when I found out that that just means concert building, which doesn't sound half as beautiful as Concertgebouw. Yeah. (laughs) But it is an incredible building to see from the outside. It's breathtaking from the inside. And so it was quite an overwhelming experience sort of thinking, well, this is because we always rehearse in the hall. And it still isn't, you know, every day feels a privilege to be rehearsing and playing and performing in that hall. I still can't uh, take it for granted, as it were. I mean, it's such a beautiful, beautiful surrounding. And the most wonderful, lovely, inspiring, sensitive, intelligent musical colleagues that anyone could wish for. It's a very happy orchestra. The Dutch as a nation are very, one of the most important words in the Dutch language is gezellig, which means sort of cozy, comfortable, friendly. And it's a very gezellig orchestra. It means that it's very supportive atmosphere. People are always encouraging one another. And yeah, there's a mutual sort of respect, I suppose. Trust. Yes, I'm trying to think it's a very musical orchestra. People love individuality and personality is nurtured, is respected, is encouraged. So it's a very friendly, warm environment. And when I joined the woodwind section, you know, most of them had been there for many years. So it was like a well-oiled machine. And I, I was a sort of the new cog fitting into a well-oiled machine, which was a wonderful experience and everything sort of open to, you can talk about balance and you can talk about intonation and you can talk about timing. And so it's a very, yeah, friendly orchestra, musical orchestra. Sound I think is in the hall is such a very important thing. And you commented on us having an individual sound and we always consider the, the sound of the hall as being you know like a member of the orchestra or an instrument of the orchestra that we have to try and take with us when we go on tour to a perhaps less favorable or or maybe in some cases easier because it's not an easy hall to play in at all we sometimes find it difficult to hear from where the woodwind position is to hear the violins and the, what's happening at the very front of the stage for example and it's quite sometimes quite difficult to hear on stage you know from left to right so it's by no means an easy hall to play in, but it's a very beautiful hall and it's a beautiful hall to listen to music in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we we try and take that with us when we go on tour in a way. <laughs>
0: Fantastic. I'd like to just touch upon some of the flutes that you play, because I saw in a video you did with the you were talking about the Mahler symphonies. And I know that you have a silver, a gold and a, a wood flute. You said that the wooden flute would probably be more suited for the Mahler symphonies. But can you tell us a little bit more about these instruments? Because each one requires a very different playing style, doesn't it?
1: Yes, I am a very, very lucky lady. I have got <laughs> my main two instruments. I've got a 14 carats gold Hanes with a gold Lafant head joint. It's the 22 carats head joint, which is absolutely beautiful with gold keys, rosé gold. It's the, uh, yes, gorgeous, gorgeous. I'm very lucky. And my other main instrument is a wooden Powell, which has also got gold gold keys, and that's got a head joint by Tobias Manka. So both my main instruments are American with European head joints. I don't know whether that's uh, something relevant or not. Then I've got two silver flutes. I've got an altus, which I also play with they have a LaFayette head joint. That's um, what is called the P.S. I don't know whether they still use that uh, term, powdered silver altars. So it's a very hard sort of silver. And I've also got my old French Louis Lot, which dates from probably 1903. But unfortunately, it was found without a head joint. So I play that with a Lafin head joint as well. <laughs> so those are, those are my, my four instruments, two silver, one wood and one gold. But the main ones that I play in the orchestra are the, the wood and the gold, the Powell and the Haynes.
0: And how do you decide which one you're going to play, depending on the repertoire? It's the, Yes, it's definitely the repertoire that
1: is the deciding factor. More or less 1900 is my sort of cut-off point. For French repertoire, something more like 1880. So, f- for example, Berlioz, I do on a wooden flute. And then once he gets Ravel Debussy, then I would switch to gold. And for German repertoire or other repertoire, then then something like 1900. Great. I'd just like to talk
0: about some of those brilliant lockdown insanity prevention videos that you did during the glory days of the 2020 lockdowns. I mean, they're wonderful resources for flutists and even classical musicians of all experiences. How do they come about
1: Oh, well, that was, yes, as you say, the first lockdown. And I am a little bit of a workaholic, has to be said. And I, the idea of having, well, in, in, of course, in the first instance, we didn't realise quite how long it was going to last. But as soon as it was announced that we weren't going to have any public concerts for 10 weeks, the first thing that got cancelled were lots of masterclasses. And I, I just felt so sorry for young players you know at music college which is such a exciting time a rich time for meeting people and playing in all sorts of sorts of crazy ensembles and of course practicing your socks off and playing concerts left and right and all that vanished i mean it's i found it hard enough and i've been you know doing this job for 30 years and i know what it is so you know to have 10 weeks when you're not playing concert is hard enough with the experience. If you don't know what you're missing and, and are maybe still studying or maybe recently graduated, I just thought, oh, that's so awful. Of course, orchestral auditions were all being cancelled. And I know a lot of colleagues and students and friends found it difficult to sort of motivate themselves to practice during that time. So I sort of literally just thought, well, what can I do to help motivate people and motivate myself? I mean, it was a way of, you know, once I'd said, okay, guys, I'm going to make 10 videos in the next 10 weeks. And I'd never made a video in my life. I had no idea how iMovie worked. And and I just, I'd said I'd do it. So I was going to have to do it and find a way. So it was a way of keeping me motivated, I suppose, and busy and lockdown insanity prevention. Uh, the name <laughs> says it all. And the acronym LIP seemed quite appropriate for a fluke. So yeah. <laughs> I just took 10 topics which are the most commonly asked for or the 10 pieces or aspects of flute technique that I just find myself talking about the most during my teaching and I just thought that would be it and uh well there were rather a few more after that because people said oh can't you do one on this and can't you do one that, yeah. On that? and yeah I'm still uploading stuff from time to time although now it's quite difficult to to fit making of a video into my busy daily life but at that time it was a it was a way of keeping me motivated and interested in doing something and hopefully you know it was a a resource which would be there for years to come.
0: Definitely I found it really interesting in one of the videos that you said that when we practice that actually you know we need to allow ourselves the permission to experiment with sound and actually sometimes we just, you know, I certainly know that as classical musicians, as flute players, we're very kind of, we want to get things right like all the time and I think we have to learn to be kind to ourselves, I think, in the practice room, right?
1: (laughs) Be kind and have fun and to explore and experiment and, you know, maybe that means If you're not used to thinking in that way, sort of just saying, okay, the last five minutes before I put my flute away, I'm just going to make noise. I'm going to try and copy the bird that I can hear singing outside. I'm going to try and sound like a violin. I'm going to try and sound like a French horn. I'm going to try and sound like an oboe. I'm going to muck about with different fingerings. You know, I've come across some marvelous fingerings uh, just by mucking around, really. And so, allowing yourself to have that sort of playtime, exploration and experimentation time, I think uh, you know you can come across all sorts of ways of using your body, your fingers. You know, you can have fun with sort of harmonics, or you know, just no boundaries, no limits, and just playtime. <laughs> it's important for children, and it's important for grown-ups as well i think you know having
0: that freedom that sounds like a great way to finish well emily it's been just a pleasure talking to you thank you so much oh and i should add that you're coming back to london next year for the um academy masterclasses. yes
1: i am i think they're in march so yeah fantastic
0: yeah oh that i'm sure that'll be a wonderful experience for you to come back and teach the students there oh it's it's always such a pleasure
1: teaching. I'm a visiting professor at the academy, so I go a couple of times a year and work with all the students. And uh, it's a wonderful class. I, I love teaching. I've been lucky enough to have some superb teachers and I love passing on their tips to the next generation.
0: <laughs> Thank you very much, Emily. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Annabelle. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Talking Classical podcast. I do hope you enjoyed listening. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify or other major outlets where you get your podcasts. You can also follow the Talking Classical podcast on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube or the Talking Classical blog. If you have a moment please would you leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts as this will help to increase visibility and get the podcast to more people. Many thanks for listening once again and I hope that you'll be able to join me for another podcast very soon. Bye for now!